again, happy, happy Father's Day. And I want to do a little bit of sharing on values I'd like to impart to my children, to my grandchildren, and that I think we want imparted to all of our children. And I think every one of us who is a parent, soon to be a parent, or who want to be parents, all of us want to raise kids who are healthy, confident, bold, vibrant, full of life, and who love God, and who have some character. I don't want them to be characters, I want them to have some character. I think we all want that. And I don't want my kids to have to copy my style, my taste, my method, my music, because it's not going to happen. It's never happened. What we do want to impose to our children are values. And I get a little scary when I have to do something about husbands, because I are one, or when I have to do something about parenting, because I am one. But I remind you that I know I'm just a man under construction. I'm not a perfect father. I'm not a, a perfect man. And I don't have perfect children. And uh, this may be shock, but neither do you. <laughs> but I want great kids that can make an impact in this world. And sometimes we tend to be hyper-controlling towards our parenting style. Others turn the whole house over to the kids and let the kids go completely wild. I remember being in a room where a 10-year-old boy got mad about something and started screaming. He was screaming at an adult who wasn't even his parent, I hate you. And his parents sat there and didn't say a word, didn't do anything. And after that kid left the room, there was that embarrassing silence for a moment. And then the mom said, you know, I was so repressed and controlled as a child, I'm glad Junior is learning to be congruent with his inner feelings of rage and hostility. I would never want to damage his psyche by shaming his transparent authenticity. And I'm thinking, if this kid was any more transparent, he'd be Dennis Rodman. I'd like to shape his psyche for a minute. So I want to talk about biblical values, and here's the good news. These are not white values. These are not American values. These are not my personal values. They're biblical values. So on that, we can all agree if we do believe God's Word is true and His hope for all of us is in our best interest. I want this to be the kind of a human being I want to raise, and I intend to raise this human being that way with God helping me, faults and all. So parenting is always a humbling thing. Let me give you four values I'd like to see transferred to my children and all of our children. The first one, gratitude, gratitude. In other words, I want my children to grow up with the capacity for appreciation, gratitude, and generosity. Here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. Be thankful, whatever the circumstances may be, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And part of the problem we face in our culture and in our economy is that it's built on making people feel entitled to what they want but don't have. I heard someone say one time, if God wants us to be happy all the time, then why doesn't He just give us everything that we want? Well, that's an interesting question. But if you want to develop a child with capacity for gratitude, is it a good parenting strategy to give them everything that they want? 
In the short term, getting what they want produces a burst of gratification. Sure. So it seems good. But in the long run, if you always gratify every single desire of that kid, it inevitably leads to a selfish individual that has this personal sense of, you owe me. Life owes me. The world owes me. My parents owes me. The government owes me. And it destroys your capacity to be grateful. I want that to be part of their lives, gratitude. A psychologist by the name of Don Baker writes that this sense of entitlement in our culture has become so strong, it's led to other things, including the proliferation of lawsuits. People don't get something they want, they just sue. For example, the San Francisco Giants were sued for passing out Father's Day gifts to men only. No kidding. They got sued for that. A psychology professor sued for sexual harassment because somebody hung mistletoe at the Christmas party. Sued for sexual harassment. A psychic was awarded $986,000 when a doctor's CT scan impaired her psychic ability. I, I told my wife, you'd think she'd have seen it coming if she was a psychic. But when we live in a day like this, these lawsuits are epidemic, and it's due to this unhealthy, unrealistic sense of entitlement we have in this culture. You know, a good wake-up call for all of us, this world owes you nothing. It was here long before you showed up. It doesn't owe you a thing. Life doesn't owe you anything. And so, my job as a parent isn't to satisfy every single desire of my children. But what happens is we parents get busy, then we feel guilty because we're busy, and we try to compensate by giving money or stuff to our kids. And it's a deadly combination of guilt and gifts. You know, guilt because I don't think I've done enough as a parent, gifts to try to make up for it. As a result, we have produced what this psychologist calls enriched deprivation. Kids are given way too much stuff they don't need, stuff that's not good for them, and not nearly enough of what they desperately need. And then another thing that happens, because we're so busy, we not only cave into our kids' desire, we do it because of how it makes us feel as parents. So the biggest barrier to saying no was that I knew if I say yes, I'll be the hero. And yet, you know, I love to give to my kids because when I do, I get a burst of gratitude and joy. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so who doesn't like that? Who doesn't want to be the hero? Saying no to our children means we sometimes have to say no to ourselves. Are we willing to put long-range character development on our children ahead of our own short-term gratification? So, what I prize most for my child, more than anything, is the development of good character, a grateful heart, and a capacity to go through life with a sense of appreciation, and not to fall prey to this sense of, you owe me, or entitlement, or I deserve it. Look, if any of us got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell. I don't want what I deserve. I want the grace and mercy of God. And sometimes, what was that old Rolling Stone? Forgive me, a little of my 60s is coming back uh, after Elvis. I was thinking uh, the Stones had one. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, you just might get what you need.
I called Mick, tried to get him to come down, but I couldn't afford, afford to book him. So I want my kids to be grateful. I want them to go through life with the capacity to be grateful people. I'm grateful I got a car to drive. It may not be new in your case, but you got a car. And if you don't have a car, maybe you got two good legs and you're not in a wheelchair and you can walk. There's, I'm grateful for electricity. Ours went out for 16 hours. Let me tell you something. All of a sudden, electricity was big in my life. It's hooked up to everything. The well wouldn't work. There's no water. Can't flush your toilet. The freezer, the meat, the milk, the eggs. Electricity, something we all just take for granted every day, or water. And suddenly when it's gone, you feel grateful. Oh, water, water, a bath, a flush toilet, you know, a cold freezer. Stuff that seems insignificant we take for granted. When it's taken away, all of a sudden you say, praise God, thank you. Or when the doctor gave you a report that it looks like it's malignant, and they do a second test, and they come back and say, no, we were wrong, it's benign. You that feeling, oh, thank God, I'm healthy. I'll, I'll take good health over any amount of money any day. You know what? I mean, you can't buy health. You can't buy happiness. You can't buy a good kid. Money can buy a lot. It's a good thing. But there are some things money can't buy. Be sure you have those things. And be sure we impart them to our children. Charles Simpson told me years ago, he said, you know, Rick, we want our kids to turn out like us, but we don't want them to go through what we went through that made us like us. And I thought, isn't that a catch-22? You know, nobody told me we love you. Son, we're proud of you. So I want to overcompensate and give it to my children. Nobody got me a gas card and a wash card that they won't use. I wouldn't mention any names, but I, I, I never had I never had that. But I'm I, I'm so pleased to be able to give it that sometimes I probably like you do too much. And if you're wealthy, it's just really easy to buy and buy and buy. And the last thing I want my kids to grow up to be is a snot. I'm serious. So I want them to be able to be grateful. The second value that's important is responsibility. Responsibility. You know, at birth, the dependency factor for a baby is 100%. That little sucker can't do anything. It's totally dependent on you for everything. And the responsibility factor starts out at zero. They aren't responsible for anything when they're born. So a parent, as a parent, my goal every year then would be to help their dependency factor start going down and the responsibility factor to start coming up. I shouldn't have to tell you to brush your teeth and floss. I shouldn't have to tell you to make your bed when you're 18. Clean up your mess. If you mess up the kitchen, clean it up. If you spill it, wipe it up. If you dent your car fender, tell daddy. Don't let daddy find it one day. You tell him. You become responsible. It's my fault. I never tell a police officer, I had no idea I was speeding. I have never said that. I, I mean, I just plead guilty, just right off the bat. If there's any shot at mercy, it's going to be 
Just tell the truth, Rick. Yes, I was speeding. It was premeditated. It wasn't one of those sins I didn't know. No, no, I chose that sucker, polished it. I absorbed it completely. The radar detector didn't help me. Eyes didn't help me. I did it. I did it. And you are the sum of all the choices you've made. I'm not here to condemn. I'm trying to help you. The way to get well is to take ownership. Be responsible. You know, you married that person. You, you, you took the job. You charged the credit card. Nobody made you buy 16 cats. You did that. Be responsible for that. And my goal then would be to help them become less dependent on me and more responsible as they grow up. Years ago, when our little girls were little bitty, we rented that great Disney movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and it's an absolute classic. But in terms of personal responsibility, it's a disaster. I realized how much it modeled for my girls something very different than I wanted for them. I mean, here's a woman, Snow White, hiding from her image-obsessed stepmother because she feels powerless, helpless, and afraid. Then she takes a job doing menial labor for these seven vertically challenged cranky guys because she's afraid she couldn't find more fulfilling work. And then the whole time she passively sits around singing the song, Someday My Prince Will Come. So I wanted my girls to know girls. Don't you ever do that. If you're ever in that situation, you go and confront that evil witch face to face. You tell her to come to grips with the aging process. Tell her, tell her you have no intention of being the fall guy because of her neurotic insecurities and fading sexual attractiveness. And tell her to stop talking to a mirror, get a good therapist. And tell those seven short cranky guys, get a life. If they can't handle the basic challenges of personal hygiene and housekeeping, then tell them they'll have to get somebody else who's domestically passive and codependent to rely on. And stop waiting for some prince to come and rescue you. Build deep relationships. Find meaningful work. Serve the poor. And when it comes time to choose a prince, let daddy decide. Amen. See? When responsibility doesn't get developed in a human being, the person gets crippled. And so we have no-fault divorce, no-fault insurance. Hey, somebody's at fault. Adam started this whole deal off. You know, he says, the woman you gave me was your idea. I was doing real good till you showed up. It's your idea. She gave to me, and I did eat. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. But everybody else shifted in the blood. Not my fault, not my fault. And we live in a culture when it's nobody. You've been fired from four jobs, but it's not your fault. It is your fault. If four people call you a jackass, buy a saddle. Go to Cavender. Get you a nice one. Because you are. You've been married five times, six times. Hey, you are the problem. There ain't that many bad men or bad women in the world. You suck. You need to change. <laughs> My daddy's married five times. I said, Daddy, do a woman a good favor. Don't get married. Stop it. He's 96 and still on the prowl. Oh, boy. 
I have interesting DNA in here, that's for sure. So responsibility is the capacity to own my life, my problems, and nobody else's. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6, 5, each of you should carry your own load. Own your own life. Nobody is responsible to make you happy. No one. There is no spouse that can complete me. That's why I need God. He made you that way. You can snort it, sniff it, lift it. You, you, you can sleep with it. You, you can drive it. You can fly it. You can live in it. And it's nice, but it won't make you happy. Only God can make you happy. And so I don't look to somebody else for my personal happiness, although there are plenty of people who are lifters who come into my life that bring encouragement and joy, and, and I can't thank God enough for those people. Uh, I have a lot of flaws, a lot of faults and flaws, but don't ask my wife to name them. But not being grateful has never been one of them. I am extremely grateful. You know, I, I'm grateful for you. I, I'm grateful that we have what we have. I, I run in circles of people that have 20,000 people, phenomenal churches. You know, I wish I was in that league, but I keep punching with what I got, and I'm grateful for what I have, or you'll get yourself to the place you won't enjoy anything. And then you can, you, you'll have friends in this church, some that are very, very well-to-do, some that are very poor. And you know, if you hang out with people and you don't have good perspective, you'll be unhappy with what you have. You'll be unhappy where you live. You'll be unhappy with what you drive. Don't let that happen, because that's what the enemy wants you to be, unthankful. Instead of being thankful, I got a roof over my head, I hear it thundering out there now. I'm glad it's dry, I'm glad we got an umbrella. And I'm glad I've got some friends that have more than me, because sometimes they share it, and it's awfully wonderful. And then sometimes, I, even though I'm not in that league, sometimes I can do a little bit to help somebody else along the way. It's great life just to be thankful for what you have, good health. My wife hadn't left me in 41 years. I'm glad. I certainly don't deserve that, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful I have two beautiful children I love with all my heart and two now two grandchildren, and uh, I want to be a good grandfather to them. I hope I can do good things for them as life emerges. You hear the rain? <laughs> so you might as well sit still. Uh, all right. You don't want to go out there in this. You know, don't, don't wait till your kid's 18 to start teaching responsibility. When a child says to a mom or a daddy, I'm bored, ever heard that one? I'm bored. Very often the parent is tempted to take that on as their personal responsibility. Well, Billy, why don't you go outside and play? Well, it's too hot. No, that's too boring. Well, why don't you call up some friends and have them come over? Nah, probably nobody's home. And then mom just keeps pitching, pitching, pitching ideas. Well, why don't you draw a picture? Why don't you write a letter to the president? Why don't you do a science experience? Why don't you memorize a chapter of the Bible? Why don't you read War and Peace? How's that sound? Boring, boring. What else you got? Well, how about I give you $1,000 and fly three of your friends to Disneyland? Will that work? Now, what you're doing is you're training that child that their boredom is your problem, that you are supposed to fix their boredom. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that is true at all. My boredom is my problem. And that's what they learn if they go through life waiting on somebody else to make their life interesting 
are fulfilling, are easier, are comfortable, are workable. And that's not God's best for our children. So why don't you just say this, well, Billy, you're bored, huh? You know what? I think you've diagnosed it correctly. I do know the symptoms of of boredom, and by golly, you've got them. Yes, sir. I, I see that very clearly. You are definitely bored. But Billy, you're a smart kid, and I believe you'll get your head and thoughts together and figure out what you can do to solve that problem and walk out of the room and let them solve that problem. Now, the third characteristic I want in my kids is a bit different. I call it imperfection. I want them to understand they are imperfect. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but think of yourself with sober judgment. And sometimes we just, in some areas of our life, we aren't sober-minded. We think more highly of ourselves. I remember years ago, one of our girls did something they weren't supposed to do, and they were denying it in the back seat of the car. And the problem was I didn't have absolute incontrovertible proof. I had no smoking gun, but circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. So I was doing a cross-examination, but she was pretty savvy. In fact, at one point she looked up at me with deep hurt, misty eyes, a quiver in her voice, a trembling lip, and said, Daddy, do you think I'd lie to you? I said, sweetheart, of course I think you could lied to me. Everybody I've ever known has lied at one time or another. It's not a good thing, but we all have the capacity for it. How many remember the famous story about lying in American history, George Washington cutting down the cherry tree? His father said, who cut down this tree? And George Washington is reported to have said, I cannot tell a lie, it was me. Anybody remember that in history? Yeah. Well, did you know that the author of that biography was Mr. Parson Weems in the 19th century? Did you know he made that story up? The most famous story about not lying in American history was a lie. (laughs) So I said to her, honey, anybody who says they never lie is lying. Mostly I think you tell the truth. Mostly I do. But absolutely I think you could lie. Suddenly it got real quiet in the back seat. So there's two separate issues here. Number one, do I think you are a person worthy of being valued and celebrated and cherished and encouraged and loved? And second, do I think you're a sinner capable of really messing up? And the answer to both, absolutely, absolutely. And one reason it's important, if I underemphasize my child's propensity to sin, If I pretend like there's no real capacity for evil in them, it creates a conflict inside. And they know it's there. But eventually they think, if dad knew the real truth about me, he wouldn't love me. And from that, then they learn how to hide. And one of the best ways to help children understand that we are imperfect is to recognize your own as a parent. And one of the ways you can express it to your kids is apologizing, asking forgiveness when you do something wrong. Let them see it. Let them hear it. I've been wrong many times, and I've had to do that. And maybe if you've now gotten your life straight and you've got good value in your life, and maybe you missed your children for most of their life and you weren't the father or mother that you should have been, you can have that time when when it's a more serious note and you're talking. Uh, with the kids and that subject there, you can say, by the way, 
I may not have been a good parent. I may not have been there for you. I want you to know I'm sorry. I take my responsibility very serious now. I'm focused. I want Jesus to be proud of me. I want you to be proud of me. And I just want you to hear me say, I really messed that up, and I'm very sorry, but I'll be the best parent I can be from this time forward, and I love you dearly. Now, you may think that that makes you look small, but it makes you look big when people humble themselves, particularly a parent to a child. And so the best way they learn they're not perfect is when they have a parent who appropriately will confess and repent, whatever it may be. Now the last value I want to give you is the most important. And I want my kids to know you are loved. I want that more than anything in the world. You can't do anything that will separate me from loving you. I may be disappointed in your action, it may be hurtful, but nothing you can do will separate my love for you, because that's exactly what God the Father says to you and me. What shall separate us from the love of God? Answer? Nothing. Absolutely. Yeah, but you don't know what I did. I don't care what you did. It didn't stop God loving you. I love you because you're my child. You're my—I'm trustee of your life. I'm a life source. That's what a father is, life source. And I take that responsible. I want you to turn out and have a great life and have it abundantly. I want you to know I'm in your corner. I'm for you on your suckiest, worst day. I believe in you. I I didn't have that. Many of you didn't have that. But I want my kids to have that. And if you're a Christian, my Heavenly Father feels that way about you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never write you out of my will. Wow. This is our adoption process was taken from biblical law in which when, when a Roman adopted a child, it could never be written out of the will, but natural-born biological children could. But when you chose someone to adopt, you chose them, and now God says they can never be written out of your will. And that's why God uses that term that we have the adoption as sons to God. He chose us, and He adopted us, and He will never let anyone pluck us out of His hand. That, that is confidence building. That's not guilt, shame, and condemnation. That's just grace. So you are deeply loved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. Every human being needs to know that their mere existence on earth is the source of delight and value, not only to God, but to the people who brought them into the world. And by the way, if you're going to make a baby, you better be prepared to be a daddy. Any fool can make a baby, but it takes a man to be a father. So don't be thinking about making a baby if you're not prepared to be a father or a mother. And so there are two ways we can do that. One is with words, affirmation, encouragement. A parent in a grocery store gets frustrated with a fussy toddler. Not a defiant human being, just an immature, fussy toddler, and the parent starts saying, what's the matter with you? Why do you act so stupid? I can't take you anywhere. And over time, that begins to go into the spirit of a child until they don't think very much of themselves, and their heart gets warped. 
But we all know it's important to express affection and appreciation on a regular basis to our kids. I don't think you can say, I love you, too. I don't care how macho, I don't care how much you can bench press, I don't care how tough you are, you better learn to say, I love you. I love you. Put it on a text when you text your kids. Give them a hug and a kiss, say, I love you. When they drive off to school, I love you. Let that be your last. Don't wait till a building's on fire from a terrace and put it on a voicemail. Just say it until it becomes a habit every day. I, I've told you embarrassing things about myself. Uh, all of our board, all of the guys that are friends of mine, we all say, everybody from the district attorney on down, love you. Love you, man. Love you too. Love you. That's a, that's a good thing. You know, in the Middle East, they'd embrace each other and you'd get a kiss on the cheek, and you still would if you went to the Middle East. We shake hands, but they would embrace and kiss on the cheek. And I love the Middle Eastern fathers because they still kiss their sons. Not sexually, but they kiss as a sign of affection, and that kid is their future and their life. That's a very masculine thing to do. Big tough guy, big tough daddy. I don't think anything is more tender than two tough guys in an embrace. I love you, man. Now, if, if people, if sports heroes can do it when they win a Super Bowl or an NBA championship, for God's sake, we ought to be able to do it in a home or a family or brothers and sisters in Jesus, right? <laughs> hug somebody, scare them to death. Go ahead, just hug them. So, tell them with words. Find out what their language is, and then tell them you love them. You say, well, it's awkward and I'm not good at it. Tell them anyway. Tell them awkward and not good at it. Tell them. If you didn't get it when you were growing up, I certainly didn't, then tell them anyway. And sometimes they won't tell you back. Tell them anyway. This may be a note worth writing down. It is not your child's job to make you feel loved. You are the parent. It's never our children's job to satisfy our neediness or emptiness. I don't want my kids to be codependent on mommy or daddy by smothering them. They've got to be independent. And then sometimes a mother will coddle a son way overboard. You're going to cripple them like that. Their job isn't to make you feel loved and needed. That's a job of friendship. That's a job for a husband. That's not a job for a kid. That kid's job is to sit under you affirming and embracing them, sending them out into the future. And so when you need that, you need to get that address somewhere else, but it's not your job to have them build you up, it's your job to build up their heart. Now the second way we can help our kids grasp how much we love them is just spending time. We all know time is one of the most valuable commodities we have in our culture. That's why we call it spending time, because it carries the same value as money. And as our kids get older, they begin to see that. And so, they see how valuable our work and careers and time are to us. So when we put our career aside to be with them, instinctively their mental algebra kicks in and they think, hey, career is important to dad, dad stops career to be with me, therefore my dad thinks I'm more important than his career. Wow, that's important. Go to a ball game when you can. If you didn't do it when they're young, try to be there for them when they're old. 
They all expect you to be there when they have a car wreck or they've been hit with a disease in a hospital or a major crisis, but they don't expect you to be there in the unimportant times. That's where you earn your stripes. I've heard people say, well, quantity time isn't important, it's quality time. Oh, yeah? Well, then you tell your teenager, okay, kid, I got 25 minutes. Let's get into an intense, in-depth conversation before I go back to work. Good luck with that. No, to get quantity time with your teens, you've got to have, to get quality time, you've got to have some quantity time. You've got to invest or plant some seemingly unimportant moments to get a few special moments out of the deal. So you sit down with your daughter and you give her quantity time. Here's what a typical girl might say, well, Daddy, we went to the mall. Nothing much happened in there except they had a sale at Old Navy and I found the cutest top, but they didn't have my size. Really? Did you get anything else? No, I didn't see anything else, but then we got a strawberry smoothie. It was great. You know that new store that just opened? Yeah. You should go there next time. All right, I will. Let's go together and let's go next week. Well, after that, a few of us went over to Melissa's house. Do you remember her sister? She went to college this year. I forget what she's majoring in. Anyway, her boyfriend started smoking and asked us if we wanted to try it. I didn't. Jennifer did. She gave me a hard time for saying no. Now, I hope you can see this. When it comes to conversing with our teens, there's a sense in which you have to open a lot of oysters to get a few pearls. Putting up with those mundane, undivided attention moments when not much that's important is being said leads to a few precious moments when something intimate does get said. Now, again, they think you're going to be there in a crisis, but to remain present through ordinary, everyday moments, they start to catch on you really do care and you really do love them. But don't forget that you have to make that time. You will never find that time. Uh, I never had any parents come to a game, but I went to all my kids' game, whatever they were in, uh, uh, unless I was overseas. I, we went. I, I mean, we sat there and sweat, eat dust, drive forever, or freeze in the cold. But I did want my children to know, hey, we're with you. We're involved with you. We care about you. We're proud about you. Can we get in the car and go now? It's, I'm cold. <laughs> Let's go get some hot chocolate or something. But I learned that by not having that. So give that. So if my kids ever go on Oprah and talk about, oh, my daddy and my mama didn't spend time with me. I'll come back from the dead and haunt you. I'll <laughs> eat you alive. We laid down our lives for our kids, and now our grandchildren too. And it's a pleasure to do so. But you better not go on Oprah, Dida. I'll tell you for sure. Well, I'm done. Those are just some things I'd like to see engraved in my kid's heart and on all of our children. I know it's on God's heart. Our deepest desire with our children is to help them see themselves and live their lives in light of a relationship with God. Truth is, God made them unique, and they are. Never be another one like them. He loved them enough, found them precious enough to send His Son to die and rise again for those children. And through all we say and all we do, our deepest desire is to help them see themselves like God sees them, to help them know that they are valuable, They're precious, and I want to help you become all God made you to be. 
May look pretty bad right now. May look rough right now. But it's how you finish, not how you start. And so maybe you got off to a bad start. It's never too late. God says in the prophet Joel, I'll restore the years the enemy took from you. I will restore. So don't worry about what you wasted. Say, God, restore my love and value for my kids. And I want my kids not to be religious. Religion is man's ultimate rebellion against God. I want them to love God. I want His Word to be in them, not so they can be Bible parrots, but so they can have good character, make good judgments, have a great life, and help some people to make their little world, however big or small it is, a better place because they're in it. Then I'll be happy, you know, to be fulfilled, not need me, and know they're going to be fine in the future, and then God will bless, He says, to a thousand generations. Great peace have they which love my law. He says, great is the peace of my children, for they are taught of the Lord. And the best way I can do it is I bring my children to church. I want my children to see how important God is to me. Nobody has ever accused me of being religious, but I do love God. I love Jesus, and I want to be whatever He made me to be. And I make judgments every day based on the values of His Word, and I treat others the same way when the temptation is not to. So I think I'm headed down the right road to a good life, a quality life. If you came out of a bad, religious, legalistic background, don't put that on God. He didn't do that. I just want you to be, do I want my kids to go in the ministry? Not if they can help it. This is a place you get drafted. This is not a place you volunteer. God calls you. And if God didn't call you, I just want you to be a great person, a great mom, a great husband, a great, a great uh, contractor, a, whatever God made you to be. You're going to be valuable wherever you are. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.